Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is Christine Williamson. Christine was previously with Building Science Corporation and her involvement in the project we're going to talk about today began while she was with BSC. She is still involved with this project and the client with BSC's blessing. Christine has spent her career in building science forensic, my field now too, discovering why buildings fail and working with owners, architects, and builders to remedy the problems. She is the founder of the Instagram account at Building Science Fight Club, which I love, an educational project that teaches architects about building science in construction which they need. She graduated from Princeton University and received her Master's of Architecture from New School of Architecture and Design. Christine is the past chair of the ASHRAE Technical Committee 1.12, Moisture Management in Buildings, and is a frequent lecturer on building science at universities and professional conferences. Today, we're going to chat about the restoration of the Belvedere Castle in New York City's Central Park. I always wanted to live in a castle. The architect's nightmare isn't the one where you show up for the final trigonometry exam completely unprepared, or or you're at Trader Joe's with no pants on, God forbid. The architect's nightmare is getting a late night call from a client who blindsides you with a serious problem you never saw coming. It's 10 times worse when you've done a good job. The restoration of Belvedere Castle in Central Park, in which a folly designed by Frederick Law Olmsted was converted into a conditioned space was undertaken with extraordinary care by a team of intelligent and experienced designers working with some of the best subcontractors around. But it developed real problems as algae began growing on its interior walls. 
the source of the problem turned out to be fascinating in a really unexpected way. Because of the COVID-19 lockdowns, New York City's air quality improved significantly, and it was air pollution that had been inhibiting the growth of the algae on the damp surfaces. In a cleaner environment, the algae bloomed. Happily, fixing the problem turned out to be relatively simple and inexpensive because the analytical tools of building science allow us to understand the practical mechanics of what is happening. This is the simplicity on the far side of complexity. So let's talk about this castle, because this sounds like an an insanely interesting project. I mean, how many design professionals ever get to say, oh, I worked on a castle? I mean, that doesn't (laughs) happen. So tell me a little bit about this project as far as What's the story here? The history, the goals, the aspirations behind this project? Belvedere Castle is just this treasure of a building in Central Park, in New York City's Central Park. I actually lived super close to it, and I never knew it was there. It's um, Central Park is um, it's got all these little pockets and secrets in it that when even if you're uh, even if you're a resident and a frequent visitor, so I lived close to Central Park and I had a dog and we still I just never saw the castle. <laughs> it was designed by uh, Olmsted and Vaux, architects. Sort of dream of working on a project like that, or I certainly did in architecture school. You learn about those. Um, legends in in architecture in school. So um, it was a a pleasure to get called one day to take a look at this castle, which was originally designed as a folly. So it was never intended to be occupied. It was intended just to be picturesque, which it certainly is. It's a little bit deceiving though. You see pictures of it and you hear castle and you assume that it's very big and it is not very large. Like my house, which is not a castle, is larger <laughs> than, than Belvedere Castle. I, mean, I don't know what the exact square footage is, but it's 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 itty bitty. It's not this, uh, this sprawling mansion fit for a king type of thing or worthy of like defending the park from, I don't know, the French. But it is, it is a really beautiful little treasure of a building. It's stone. It's made primarily of a stone called schist, which is native to the area. And um, there's some granite in there as well. So it's a masonry building. And again, it was never intended to be occupied. But when uh, the Central Park Conservancy uh, received a, a, a nice donation to restore the castle. It had fallen into disrepair and it had been restored once before, but it was not in terrific shape. And um, what they wanted to do was restore it, you know, spiff it up, clean the stone, repoint, and make the interior space actually conditioned space, occupied space. And so I was hired when I was with Building Science Corporation to do an initial, essentially a conditions assessment to take a look at it, see from a water management perspective, are we going to be able to actually keep water out of this building? Is it reasonable for us to turn it into conditioned space? I mean, we certainly knew that obviously we could clean the stone and repoint, but was that going to be sufficient to manage the water? Enlisted a, a buddy of mine in, um, in New York City that I like to collaborate on a lot with masonry buildings. His name is Peter Marciano, and he's a, another New York treasure. So we came out and took a look and did that initial conditions assessment. And our opinion was yes, that we would be able to do this and went from there. So they put in windows and doors. Then it sat empty for like 20 years. 
and fell into disrepair. It was some sort of weather station, and then they moved that to um, Rockefeller Center. And when they moved it and people weren't there regularly, it really fell into disrepair. And there was all kinds of graffiti and not looking so pristine, not looking as, as designed, certainly. Well, and that was that was kind of what intrigued me because I was looking at it and obviously kind of from a building science standpoint a little bit and looking through the scope of work, the two big things from a problem-solving viewpoint that popped into my head is, okay, scope says installing new drainage and waterproofing. I'm really interested to hear about how exactly you did that and replacing existing doors and windows. And I looked at a picture of this, and this is a big stone or small stone. It looks big in the pictures. Stone say. building. And and I'm trying to look at this and think of, from a spec writer perspective, how the hell do you spec doors and windows for that? And how <laughs> do you make doors and windows tight and, and keep the water? For, so those are the two big things I was going to ask you about today is tell me about the drainage and waterproofing and tell me about the windows and doors. The first thing I should talk about is the limitations. We had a lot of limitations on this project. The big limitation is that this is a historic building and we wanted to preserve the character. We wanted to be able to see the stone on the exterior and on the interior. So that obviously ties your hands from in terms of what you can do from a water management perspective and an and a thermal perspective, right? We weren't going to be insulating these walls. Right. Your choices are you insulate on the outside or you insulate on the inside. That's that's what we got. And and we, we wanted to be able to see this stuff. So that was um, not an option. The building was also, because of the type of stone that was used, the schist, it's very rough in its nature. So it's not a smooth surface. And water will hit those walls and stay on the walls a little longer than they would if it were this smooth tile or granite or even brick surface. So that was a little bit tricky. And then finally, the um, and this was the, the major issue, was that the roof of the castle, they're basically terraces instead of roofs. There's very little sloped roof on this project. You've got a tower with a very cute little slate roof on the tower part. But um, but for the most part, these are terraces. So the roofs are low slope or you know near flat. And the roofs drained through scuppers. And then the building facade was, was more or less tapered. So we had this situation where for the entire life of the castle, we were taking you know 100% of the water that fell on it. And we were dumping that water through the scuppers onto the walls. So you had the oh, nice. <laughs> water that just normally hit the walls. And then we were like, let's take all of the water here and dump it more onto the walls. So there was substantial staining from that. And then just the water load on the walls was uh, substantially higher than it needed to be. So the technical question in this, we knew we weren't going to be able to change the nature of the walls. They were they were always going to be tapered like that, tapered out. So it was wider at the base than it was at the top pyramid style, but not so exaggerated. We were not going to be able to change the texture of the stone, nor did we want to, but we could address the roof drainage. So the question really was, if we add internal drains to this and use the scuppers really only as overflow, will we be able to reduce the water load on the building enough to keep the interior mostly dry? And there isn't a right answer on this. This is experience has to lead you and guide you and taking a look at what the building actually looks like. And you end up making a, 
an intelligent guess um, that you, <laughs> you, you don't say a guess to clients though, right? You say in right. my professional <laughs> And it was my professional opinion that this would be sufficient, that if we could keep the water that had been falling on the roof off of the walls, that we would be able to successfully manage water, at least on the interior. If, of course, we also repointed, um, which was always part of the plan as well. So and repointing means essentially replacing the mortar. And um, that was an interesting challenge as well, replacing the mortar. There was a tiny, tiny, tiny bit on the interior because the castle had been restored one time in the past and they made a mistake in that they took the original mortar and they replaced it with, quote unquote, better Portland cement-based mortar, which was in fact stronger. So the mortar was not original, but we were able to find a tiny bit of original mortar on the interior at the bottom of a, of a staircase, like way in the, in the basement and match the original. And it was a, a softer mortar, which tends to be better for the stone itself. The Portland cement-based mortars were used in the, the, the first restoration are harder than traditional lime-based mortars, which was closer to what the original mortar was on the building. And on some projects, we think that we're doing ourselves favor. We've got this technology. We can make the mortar stronger. Why, why not use stronger mortar? And um, fortunately, didn't end up damaging the stone very much at Belvedere Castle, but it can damage the stone because when you've got this building that expands and contracts, or it's used to being able to do so in the mortar joints. And you want those mortar joints to be sacrificial, you want the cracking to occur in the in the mortar joints, not in the in the stone, because you can repoint on schedule, but it's very difficult to replace the stone, right? If, if you're replacing the stone, you're replacing the whole wall. So we found this tiny little patch of the original mortar, and we were able to match that so that the repointing this time around could be with a more appropriate lime-based softer mortar. My understanding is this is now like a visitor center and gift shop in Central Park. So obviously, people are using this space. How did you seal up the windows and doors to to keep water from coming in and still kind of maintain the look of this beautiful historic little castle? Uh, here we were, we, we also had a pretty light hand, but it wasn't too crazy in that this is a, a really common approach to detailing windows and doors in all kinds of masonry buildings. So we had two sealant joints, an interior sealant joint and an exterior joint. And we sealed the windows directly to the masonry. It wasn't terribly complicated. In a lot of ways, it was actually sort of easier from a conceptual standpoint than detailing windows when you've got a, a drained wall where you've got a cladding that sheds water and some sort of water control membrane behind the cladding. You've got to deal with, okay, well, how do I drain my wall? The space where drainage occurs in the middle of the wall, how do I do that and still make my trim look pretty at the window? That wasn't an issue for us here. It was pretty much two fat beads of sealant. <laughs> From my perspective, that window detailing wasn't terribly challenging. The roof was very difficult. So it sounds like, yes, conceptually, will we just add internal drains? That involved entirely replacing these terraces and rebuilding all of the parapets. Wow. That was very difficult. So all of the stones were, were numbered and very carefully accounted for and put back in place. So we extended the, um, we used a fluid waterproofing on the, on the roof and we extended that waterproofing through the, the wall to the exterior and then built the parapet back on top of that waterproofing. 
that was a real challenge from a construction perspective. The tradesmen and women on this job were absolutely stellar. I mean, it's it's sort of the romantic view of construction, like this was this project. It was very funny. So many of them learned it from parents and grandparents, but they also all knew this guy. Because um, <laughs> I would ask the Masons, because they're so good at this. It was just beautiful work. Like, how did you get into this, you know? They all talked about this guy, this legendary guy who they said, this was the legend, that he died on the job, not on that job, but on the job, chain smoking cigarettes, like he died <laughs> doing what he loved, you know, repointing. And uh, anyway, so they all they all learned from this. Uh, they spoke very fondly of this one guy, but a lot of them learned from um, from parents that got them into the business and they started early. And anyway, the Masons on this job really are the are the heroes of this um, this particular story. I mean, it's obviously design is is collaborative and architecture is collaborative, but this the success of the project, I think, was really dependent on their incredible workmanship. Well, and that's great to hear. It's it's really common with Masons to have that go through the generations. Mm-hmm. Great grandpa did it and grandpa did it, and or, or now it might be grandma, maybe not back in the day, but um, <laughs> you know, and so that craftsmanship. You know, I've seen that where you can just see that difference in craftsmanship from something that's almost in your DNA for those people. It probably is in their DNA for a lot of those people. I want to know, okay, so we talked briefly in the introduction about this algae, which I think is hilarious that we go into COVID lockdown and it goes crazy because the air pollution was holding it back. I'm guessing this building is never going to be completely dry just by the nature of of what you had to do. What's up with the algae? How'd you get rid of it? And do do they have to do continuing maintenance or, or is it dry enough now that they don't have the problem? This is very interesting. So the algae was not the first call I got that made my heart stop. Uh, <laughs> oh. The first call I got, I, I live in Dallas. This project is in New York. And I got a call, I guess, shortly after they'd, they hadn't opened it to the public but it was like all the, the enclosure work was pretty much finished. So it was supposed to be dry is my point. It was supposed right. to be dry. And I get this call being like, the interior of this castle is wet everywhere. There's water all over the place. And that is, you know, my job was to not have this happen. And, I, and, and my recommendation, my professional opinion was, yes, if we replace the, the roofing, if we repoint, we should be able to keep this dry. And there was just water like cascading on the on the interior walls. I looked at some photos. And I was like, this is just texted to me. This is not a good scene. But I had been there during construction, right? So I saw the, the I, I just finished speaking about how wonderful the masons were. And the roofing installation was done really, really well. And they'd done a really good job. So what the heck? Like, why is this leaking? <laughs> And it just made my heart stop. So the first thing I did was I called a friend of mine who lives just outside of New York City, but does a lot of work in New York City. And the first thing he did is start laughing. Started laughing. I was like, uh, okay, I, I, this is maybe funny for you. And he said, I'm going to send you a picture. He got off the phone and he sent me a picture of the inside of his garage. And I received the picture and I knew what was going on. And I started laughing too. So his garage also had water on the side of the garage. And what we'd had was, I think this was this, I think this was a Monday. 
So there, there had been a weekend of rain in New York City, like heavy, heavy rain, very, very humid. And then it got really stinking cold, like really, really, really cold. And this is a masonry building. It's just this thick, cold stone. And it was really humid outside and then really, really cold. And what we were getting was not leaks, but condensation on the interior. The enclosure was completed, but the mechanical systems weren't in. So there was no heat in the building. So it was just cold stone and a humid environment. So that's what what do you get when you have a cold surface and a lot of moisture in the air? You get condensation the same way you do on um, can of beer. On anything, yeah. So that was the first indication. I said, like, oh, okay. So it was, it was condensation. Don't worry about it. And it would happen every now and then, even after the building was was occupied. The reason is that it's it, it you're you're absolutely right. It's just this building is going to get cold. It's not insulated, so that stone gets cold, and the interior isn't kept at conditions that are oven like <laughs> to dry it out. Um, so we get we get condensation on those interior walls. Now a year later, I get a phone call about the algae. I pretty much. I didn't know why there was algae on it. I knew why it was, I knew why it was wet, and um, we started we, we started looking into uh, algae issues and found that this is actually an issue that occurred I don't know, the, a long time ago in Europe when they started introducing sooner than we did in North America when they started introducing clean air legislation. They would get a lot. Is they have a lot of masonry buildings in Europe, and so condensation and moss and algae and lichens on the exterior of buildings is very, very common, particularly in cleaner rural areas. But when they started passing clean air legislation, these issues in rural areas became more prevalent in urban areas as the as the air got cleaner. So there's a, a very long history of this, and we've studied this issue before. And there's it's actually not a difficult problem to solve. You just clean it. There are special cleaning solutions and, you know, sort of very mild and harmless inhibitors that restrict the growth of algae and you do it and it's not terribly expensive or burdensome and then you're done. And then to stop the condensation from recurring, <laughs> you need to turn the heat up. But what's <laughs> funny about this is that this was a this is a public building, right? This is a, this are, this is run by the Central Park Conservancy. It's a nonprofit. By the way, I, I didn't know this as a resident of New York City. I think this is lovely, but the Central Park Conservancy who maintains New York and does all of the the Central Park and does all of the landscaping and all that stuff, they are almost entirely privately funded. It's like something like over 75% of their budget is privately funded. So they are not like making it rain out there, uh, so to speak. (laughs) What they were doing, we found out, is that they were turning the heat down at night when the building wasn't occupied, when there weren't any, when nobody was working there. I was like, okay, no, 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 you can't do that anymore. You have to keep the heat on, otherwise you're gonna get you're gonna get condensation on these walls. You cannot turn the heat down. This is not a normal building. You've got to keep it warm in there, otherwise we're gonna get condensation. So it was clean the algae away with a a very mild solution and don't turn the thermostat down at night. So what did your roof look like? I mean, how how did you kind of make that come together? I imagine the requirements just for historic preservation were pretty tight and that you can't just go in there and do whatever the heck you want. 
So I, you're going to be taxing my memory a little bit because we had some structural structural requirements and constraints that we had to address as well. What was difficult, again, was that this was a, a labor and workmanship issue as well, is that the ceiling is also stone. It's a it's like a blue stone. And you know the drop ceilings that you see in mm-hmm. like commercial buildings where you have this sort of grid and the ceiling tiles just sit in the grid? Specified tons of them. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So Belvedere Castle is essentially, the, it's the same sort of system, except it's um, it's a heavier steel. And instead of those lightweight ceiling tiles, it's bluestone, big squares of, of stone there. And those get installed from the top, right? So we had to be able to insulate from the top over those stones, which was pretty pretty tricky. And, and we needed something airtight as well because we didn't want to get condensation within our roof assembly, but we couldn't do very much from an airtightness perspective because we couldn't touch it from the bottom. Um, so it was, it was very tricky. What we ended up doing was there was a new, the, the stone was already in place and then there was a new fluted metal deck that was installed. And we used a slow rise spray foam to fill the flutes under the fluted metal deck with spray foam insulation. And then we, we added additional insulation to the top, but we had to, we had to inject it like through the, um, through the deck when it was already laid and have it expand to make it airtight. Cause it wasn't, if we, if we had only insulated on the top, it's not quite airtight, right? You've got these channels for air on, on the underside. Right. So was, that was pretty tricky. Um, and, and we couldn't add very much. We were limited by, um, you know, how much vertical room we had, right? Because we still needed to be able to, there are doors. We have to be able to step out onto a roof. We can't just build it up indefinitely. That, that's interesting. I know it can be really hard to, using a spray foam type of application to make sure that you've filled all the cracks and crevices. Yeah, and we had to do mock-ups as well to make sure that we were actually going to be successful at doing that, right? Because we didn't want to, you don't want to risk it. If we couldn't make it airtight, that was going to be a real a real issue for us. So we took sections of fluted metal deck and, you know, just installed it over plywood and not on not on bluestone and, and did this, pract- we practiced, essentially, we practiced um, to see if, um, if how good we were at actually filling it filling the, the cavity. And then we'd take, we'd take off the plywood and see how well we did and, and that kind of stuff. I can't remember who made the roof, but it was a, a really, really excellent fluid applied membrane. But the, the, the idea was that was then covered with stone. So it's a protected membrane as- assembly. You don't see. Okay. So the roofing itself is not the walking surface. The water control material is underneath the walking surface. From this experience with this building and the things that the whole team went through to, you know, get it done and get it done well, what were your biggest lessons learned that this project gave you? Oh, my goodness. I I think just the real importance of collaboration and you allow people with their individual areas of expertise to participate. And, um, and make sure that when you don't know something, you ask, and that's okay. And I, I think that's one thing that we did pretty successfully on this project. And I, th- I think because it was so important and everybody, we, we wanted to be good stewards of an important building and an important part of New York's history. 
So it was um, if we didn't if we didn't know, we'd go find someone who did. And I think that was a a big lesson. I think also that when you're dealing particularly with historic retrofits, there's a lot of gray. There's a lot of areas for sensitivity and professional judgment and not a lot of tell me what to do and I'll do it type questions. Not a lot of black and white, not a lot of yes or no. And that's, again, again, that's a reason why you need really good experts and a team to navigate this stuff because it's, these, these retrofits are, there's too many, there's, there's so much nuance to them. There's, they're not just science. There's, I describe my profession as building science and people hear science and they think that stuff is so definitive. It's not, it's, it's a lot closer. These projects are a lot closer to straight up architecture than anything else. There isn't a, a single best way to the exclusion of all other ways. And I really strongly believe that that's really how it is in anything in our business. You know, oftentimes I do a lot of mentoring with younger professionals and and they'll ask me a question and my answer will be, well, it depends. It depends. Yeah. You know, what you learn to be, I think in this business as a whole is you learn to be, if you're going to be good at it, you learn to ask the right questions. You learn how to look in the right places for the answers. And you learn how to have an open mind enough to apply whatever those answers are to your unique project in front of you. Because no two buildings are the same. I, I I liken them to children. And I think I even said that in a previous podcast. Each is a unique animal with, there is no black and white, in my opinion, in pretty much anything we do. And that communication and effective collaboration has been something I think every single guest now has brought up. If we're going to do a better job, we, you're really going to answer those questions and not have problems. You have to have that. And I don't know why we struggle with it when we all know that. The person who, who really was responsible for that in this project was Denise Keveny, who was the architect of record for the project and also the owner in that she's a licensed architect. She was the architect of record on this project, but she also was the client in that she works for the Central Park Conservancy. And she, at the at the very beginning, assembled a team. Even and, and that's hard, I think, for anybody to do in that you get this special project that you're in charge of. And she could have responded with, well, I want to control every part of this. I'm a licensed architect. I'm certainly qualified. Um, I can do I can do all of this myself and take all the credits. Uh, and she didn't do that. She approached it with exactly the kind of sensitivity and nuance that uh, the project deserved. And um, I think when you set the kind of, when the owner sets that tone for a project, it, um, it's really helpful. I think a lot of stuff, we actually don't talk a lot about the roles of owners and owners representatives in projects, but I think a lot of, um, a lot of the success of projects flows from that, from what kind of, what kind of client you have, frankly. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. 
For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.